Hi, everybody. This is David Reese of Saint and Sinners, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to uh, our fourth and final of what we've been calling our classic throwback episodes. And ironically, uh, this week's guest is pretty much the uh, the guest that even kicked off the idea of, of doing these. So way back in 1990, there was a band that uh, that released one self-titled album, had a, uh, I don't know, fairly known guitarist named Tommy Thayer on guitar. You may have heard of the guy. He's out with another band right now doing their end-of-the-road tour. Yeah, a little band called Kiss. But anyways, way back in 1990, Tommy was actually part of a band called Harlow. And uh, no, we don't have Tommy on the show this week. He's uh, he's way too busy out there. And uh, pretty cool show, by the way, if you want to go catch that. Um, it's, a, it's a great... Uh, We'll see whether it's the final or not, but great tour nonetheless. But uh, also in that band, uh, we've had uh, former Focus on Metal guest Kevin Valentine was in there for a little while. Pat Regan was in there. But uh, this band, like I said, Harlow, they put out one self-titled album in 1990, and then uh, we really didn't hear from them again. But uh, one of the folks in Harlow that everybody's been waiting for a long time to hear from is vocalist Teresa Straley. And that is who we have as our special guest this week. Uh, Richie is... uh was able to strike up a friendship with Teresa over a, a long period of time. And uh, just because he was really curious about what happened with the band and, and all of that. And it's an album that he really liked. And you know how Richie is. He likes to dig in and find out things. And so he ended up becoming friends with Teresa. And through all that, she uh, she agreed to come on the show and talk all about Harlow and, you know, all the stuff that happened in the record industry during that period of time, her recollections, the good stuff, the bad stuff, and uh, you know, also even what she's up to now because she went from uh, from being the singer in that band to actually being an attorney. So great stuff this week, and so much that uh, Richie and Teresa talked about that there isn't even room this week to put any kind of music whatsoever. It's just going to be straight out talk between Richie and Teresa. And why don't we kick that off right now? Teresa. Hi, this is Richie from Focus on Metal. Hey, Richie. How's it going? I'm okay. Is snow a good time? Yeah, this is perfect. So where are you? On the West Coast? I am. I'm right now up in the high desert hanging out with the family, but I'm still doing work. Um, I actually work as an attorney. Yeah. And uh, But I'm still doing music, and um, we're probably going to release new music, oh, I would say in about March. Okay. Um, next year. Okay. And well, uh, I'm doing it all myself. I have a, a really nice home studio. Um, and it, it's going to be scaled down. It's not going to be as as huge as the Harlow record was, but um, it'll still have that edge. Okay. And then I'm going to set up some live dates, and I'm going to include songs from the Harlow record songs from my first record and then songs from this new project. It's more like like um like you know, so many songs on the Harlow record were started uh because it was me and Pat Regan pretty much. And mm-hmm. 
we added the band later. But most of the songs that were done were started out uh, as acoustic versions. Like When You Love Someone, No Escape, uh, another song that didn't get on the record called Lonely Days, Silence. Most of those were um, actual, like, just guitar vocals. And the vocals were the ones, and we kept the vocals. I didn't, like, re-sing them or anything like that. And so it's kind of like how the pre-Harlow record was. That's the only way I can explain what it will sound like. Okay. So I'm not really familiar with uh, your, your career just before Harlow. So were you were you a solo artist then, or were you doing a lot of session work? Yeah, I did a lot of session work, a lot of commercials. Um, and I um, I made a, a record prior for Alpha Records. It was a Japanese label. And then it went belly up in the United States. But it had a lot of people like Billy and the Beaters and, um, oh, I forget the other Japanese artist that was really amazing. And, um, uh, but it was, it was, it, 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 I did that. And then I, 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 you know, did mainly session work. And, um, I did a lot of, um, everybody wanted to use my voice for like ghost recordings. In other words, where I would, um, how do I explain it? Where they would mix my voice with somebody else's and stuff like that. I didn't really understand it. I was just glad to get the work. But I also pursued, I always wanted an education too. Mm-hmm. So I, it's, uh, you know, I, I, in, in between all that, I would do, um, I would take classes at a community college. And then um, after Harlow, I decided to go back and finish my undergrad degree. And somebody said, I I really wanted to go to graduate school. I always wanted to do music, but I I like the education thing. Okay. And because it stimulates my mind. Like, Like, it's almost like I have two brains in one. And one stimulates the other. And so someone said, I'm, I'm not very good at math. I didn't take a lot of math classes. And so I couldn't do graduate school because I, I wouldn't have been able to get in because there was so much math on the GRE and you have to score a certain amount and all that kind of stuff. So I said, well, isn't there any graduate school that doesn't require math? And they said, that would be the LSAT. And I said, what's the LSAT? And they said... That's law school. So that's how I ended up going to law school. Okay. I never thought I'd practice law. I never thought I would, you know, do anything like that. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I do it part-time. And, you know, the rest of the time, I'm, you know, I'm starting to get into producing artists, you know, like new artists and people that, um, you know, just want to get started. Yeah. And so... um you know, I'm working with some friends, like um, a woman by the name of Colleen Stewart, who was in the first Fanny, uh, going, that's going back, you know, decades, and she's, um, you know, she's a keyboard player, so we've done some stuff together, and then some other people, and, you know, I may end up working with Pat Regan again, I don't know, you know, okay. so. So, yeah. 
the session work you did before the Harlow record, I'm ta- I'm taking it that a lot of the albums that came out you weren't credited on. Any uh, would there be any that I might know that you sang on? Um, yeah, no, because I didn't get the credit, which was kind of a bummer. Yeah. Unfortunately, and I can't really say, you know, unfortunately. Okay. okay. So that's that's kind of a drag. I mean, it was it was uh you know, I have a lot of regrets and um um I think I should have worked harder in my music career. And um but I, you know, it was much different back then as and there was a lot of sexual harassment and there was nothing you could do about it. It's only now where there's the Me Too movement and, you know, women are coming out and, you know, talking about their sexual assaults and things like that. So it was, it was much different mm. when I was, when I was doing it. And, and, you know, I have stories of, you know, um, again, you know, some of these people have died, so I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but, but it was a lecherous, lecherous industry. Yeah. Um, it really was. So I always, I, that's why I never dove so heavily into it because I just didn't want to deal with it. Mm. It's kind of unfortunate. Mm. But um, I mean, it, it, from concert promoters to club owners, they just, radio people, you know, they all just expected sex. Yeah. I'm- and it it's, it was, it's, it's funny, Teresa. One of the questions I was going to ask you was how, how much sexism there was back then. Because when you look at all the, the girls in the bands, the likes of the, the Wilson sisters, you had Vixen. That they were, they were, they were kind of set up to, for a certain image that sex sells, and this is the way you have to conform to sell records. And I was going to ask you, did that actually happen to you? And you've already answered the question. Oh. I'll tell you what happened to me that was even, that was just as outrageous is, you know, nowadays, um, there are people that are all different weight sizes. And I've never been, like, obese or anything like that. But back in the day, especially on the Harlow records, um, people would, not not regular people, but... The industry people, they would say, you're too fat. They would tell me I was too fat. I do not look fat on that Harlow record, okay? Mm. But, to, but to them, I was too fat. And what people don't understand is, you know, when, you, when you're so thin, and, you know, I was, I was trained as a classical singer, opera singer. And so, you know, I was always mindful of my body. I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink alcohol. Um, um, even even when I played in clubs starting out, before I even made a record or anything like that, and I was singing on sessions and commercials and stuff like that, um, like a lot of phone commercials, um, uh, I guess it was the Pacific Bell, which used to be AT&T. It's going back a long time, mm. stuff like that. Um, Japanese liquor commercials and stuff like that. But I was never a drinker because I started out working in clubs in the South Bay area of Los Angeles, which is like Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach. Those are the three places, and they had a lot of clubs. 
And I started when I was underage, 16 years old. So the only way I could sing in those clubs was if I, uh, if, if food was served. And, um, but I had to be very, very disciplined and very mindful of the fact that if I even took a sip of alcohol, just one little sip, that the, the club could lose their license, the bartender would be fined, the waiter, waitress would be fined. There were serious repercussions. So, and then I also had a driver's license. And so if you were caught drinking and driving in those days and you were 16 years old or something like that, you know, there were just so many legal ramifications to drinking that I just didn't touch alcohol. And it became um, just a way of life for me. Mm. And then I found out when I was uh, studying uh, voice with my first voice teacher, who I'm actually working with now again, um, Juliana Gondek, she's a distinguished voice professor at UCLA. Uh, we're, we're, she's actually a, an amazing lyricist. So we're actually co-writing a lot of the songs that are going to come out in March. Yeah. And um, so anyway, then I learned, you know, that drinking was, was really bad for the vocal cords. It really dried them out and stuff like that. So, but in clubs, when I was, it was interesting. When I was underage, I had way more protection than when I became 18 and 21. Because then everybody... Everybody thought, well, you know, because then I was considered an adult. When I was working underage, when you ask, when you ask about sexism, nobody would touch me. Nobody would come near me because the people that own the club and the waiters and the bartenders and stuff like that kept a mindful eye on me and anybody that would approach me. So I had that kind of, you know, like big brother and big sister protection. But hmm. as soon as I became 18 and 21, that protection went away. And then it was just, you know, people were groping, walking into a radio station or a club promoter or something like that. And literally having them grab your tits was hmm. commonplace. Wow. Or trying to put their hand down your pants. I mean, it was so outrageous. Or trying to proposition me and meet me at a hotel and stuff like that. And I was like, I'm not going to meet you at some hotel, hotel room. And I mean, it was just the, the, the stories that you hear about, you know, in furtherance of their, you know, people's career and the stuff they had to do. Um, I just didn't go there. I just refused to do it. Mm. And um, maybe had I done it, I would have been more successful. You know, I would have sold more records and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, Teresa, looking at the Harlow record, right, you, you co-wrote or wrote nearly everything on it. Did you find that a lot of the labels didn't pass on you? They didn't, like, they saw you as a woman and said, no, nah, I don't want her writing songs because you're a woman. Was there, any, was there any of that at all? There was a lot of resentment because I think especially in the hard rock field, you know, it's a man's world. And so there was that resentment. And I would say the other thing that negatively impacted the whole situation was um, 
one of the mistakes I made was getting into a publishing deal. And the publishing deal required me to have a certain amount of percentage of the songs on each record. And that that really has a chilling effect on on writing and putting a project together and really putting a band together. And it was just something that got in the way, unfortunately. Mm. So And it was something it was something, you know, my sensibility, maybe it was my pre lawyer sensibility or you know, something where I just said, you know, this just doesn't seem like a good deal, but, but everybody pushed me, oh, you got to get the money because it's got to support the band and it has to build the studio, you know, and all this other stuff. Yeah. So I would say if I had to do it all over again, I would do it very differently. I would not have signed a record deal. I would not have signed a publishing deal. I would have just been self-produced and put out music myself and done like what Annie DeFranco did. Annie DeFranco did that and she's always been my idol because of it. Mm. And and I think there was a way that it could have been done uh, in terms of going to um, you know like record companies all had their like there's the U.S. record company and then there's the U.K. one and then there's an Australian one. And I think it would have been much better to license everything individually, uh, internationally. I think that would have been a much better way and it's a way to get funds that you keep your publishing and you don't have all the, um, you don't have all the, the constraints. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's a much, it was a much different business than it is now, and now I don't have those constraints, so everything is divided equally, even if I write, you know, 90% of the song, it's just, you know, writing is a partnership, Mm. and I unfortunately couldn't form those partnerships. So, Teresa, tell me, how did you meet Pat Regan? I met Pat, it was really strange, there was a guy named Brad Bailey, who I met, um, when I was uh, uh, in, a, in a Buddhist organization, um, we all chant, and I still do chant the Nam Myoho Renge Kyo um, chant. And I met Brad, and, and we did some music for the Buddhist organization. And he had this really cool little studio in his apartment, this huge apartment in Hollywood. In the Hollywood, it was right below, it was just going into the Hollywood Hills like off of Franklin and Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard and that whole thing up there. And it was a great, great, humongous, like a penthouse apartment. Just humongous. It had this beautiful view and a beautiful area. And so it was really cool. So I came over and I had been in the original Harlow, which was just an amazing band. And then what happened was DB, the guitar player, ended up getting hired by Michael Jackson to play guitar. So it broke up the band. So I had all these other songs. I I was the main songwriter in that band as well. So I had all these other songs. So I went over to Brad's and I said, you know, you've got this studio. I had nothing, you know, just my guitar and me in a little cassette player. And um, I said, you know, 
maybe you can help me, you know, record these songs. And he said, oh, you know, your voice, and maybe you can help finish some of these other songs. And I said, okay, you know. So I did that, and then we recorded some of these songs, and then he was also working with Pat Regan. So we made these demos, which were more, more, um, less hard rock and more melodic alternative rock. And great songs, just great songs. And and so you know, I would I I worked. I had a job and um, like a regular gig, you know, a nine to five job. And I was going to school and doing all this other stuff. And so I only knew Pat through. I would go at night. He would be gone. And he would go there during the day and work on stuff. So even though we worked together, we had never met each other. And then finally, we met each other. And um, they had taken a, a cassette player. Pat's girlfriend at the time worked at Warner Brothers. And they went over and they left a cassette tape to Roberta Peterson. And um, she heard it and flipped out. And that's how we got signed to Warner Brothers, but it wasn't even something I wanted to do. And when they had the first meeting, the first couple meetings, I couldn't take off from my job, so I didn't show up. I didn't go. So it was kind of a, it was kind of an accidental meeting. And then, but he and I really hit it off, and, and I've never had somebody that I've worked with in terms of recording and, and putting songs together and you know, one of the things I'm going to focus on this year is really doing something with some of the songs that we wrote that didn't get on the record and um, songs like Don't Say We're Over that it's such a, it's a hit song and somebody mm. should, somebody should record that song. It's a great song. Yeah. So, Teresa, were you signed then as a solo artist? No, no. We were signed as a band. And that was the problem. We weren't really a band. We sounded like a band, but really it was me and Pat. I would play guitar. I would do all the vocals. Pat would program drums. Like this, I'll, I'll give you an example. The song Pictures, mm. those aren't real drums. Those were programmed drums, but no drummer could ever play it. <laughs> so they could never play it the way we wanted it. We would get very, you know... We we had a certain way we wanted to hear the songs, and so it was just, you know, even drummers would say, why do you want to put drums on it? Those drums sound great. And so that's what we did. Nobody ever knew. Um, no Escape was actually started. That was one of the voice guitar demos. When You Love Someone, that was a voice guitar demo. And then, you know, they they built on it afterwards. Chain Reaction, that was a demo. That was me singing and playing, you know, a really raunchy guitar. And then Tommy came in and, and played stuff on top of it. Okay. So so, so it, it never coalesced as a band because, you know, we didn't, we didn't do the record together like that. You know, it was more after the fact and it was, you know, it just, it, it, I should have been signed as a solo artist. Okay. 
Well, Warner Brothers was very difficult, you know. It's one of those things, it's a miracle if Warner Brothers can break a band, especially in those days. So, the guys that are listed as playing on the record, how many of them actually played on the record? Well, Tommy played, Mm -hmm. Todd Jensen played, um, and then Kevin Valentine played some drums, but we had a different drummer that that came in and played some drums, and then it was Pat. Okay. And then Pat did all the keyboards, and I did a lot of the, um, you know, I did all the all the vocals, except on Silence there were some some of the low vocals, like the sound, you know, sound effects vocals. You know, we we had the guys overdub those. Okay. But it was a big. But we had. Um, you know, we had a 24-track analog studio, and then, of course, we did the slaves. So we we basically had more than 48 tracks because the keyboards and everything were all midied. And then um, sometimes we would just sample. You know, it was very different. We had to be creative the way we had to fly in vocals and we had vocals on different tracks and, you know, things like that. So we ended up having, like, 64 track records that on a on a 48 track machine. Wow. Machines when we mixed because then we had the we had the you know we basically had two reels but stuff was all over the place because of it. <laughs> so so Teresa tell me I'm going to ask about some of the guys in the band how you got them. So, so tell let's start with Todd Jensen. How did Todd Jensen enter the picture? Todd was in a band with Tommy, and they were best friends because they all grew up in Portland, Oregon. And Tommy had a band called Black and Blue. And Black and Blue played, and and Pat used to work with them and produce them and engineer them and stuff like that on some of their original records and stuff. So he would do the demos and, and everything like that. So Todd, that's how Todd came into the picture it was through Tommy okay because um, I'm a huge black and blue fan so I'm well aware of Tommy before he was even in Kiss yeah yeah I loved that band I thought it was a great band yeah they, they, if someone said to me name a band in the 80, you know a, a band in the 80s that had multiple albums that never broke one of the first band I'd probably say is black and blue because to me they had everything yeah but it's the music business <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know why. I mean, it, it, um, you know, there are a lot of bands like that. I can't even remember the names, but I remember they would come through our studio and record, and some of them were just great. And I would do vocals on their stuff all the time, mm-hmm. you know, for free. I mean, I, I don't even, you know, remember half the stuff I did, you know, but I would just do it. And um, I remember Gene Simmons wanting me to do a ghost vocal with, with he produced Doro Pesh. Yeah. She was a very sweet girl and he wanted me he wanted to do the ghost vocal thing and I couldn't because I was on Warner Reprise at the time. But um that's what everybody wanted to do to me, you know. I, I don't know if it's because people didn't like me or, or you know what it was, they let just use their voice and and whatever. But it was I mean, I, I accommodated people all the time. I mean I would sing back on vocals, put them together, um I sang one, who's the guy that did Dream Dream Weaver? That guy, what's his name? Gary Wright. I did background vocals on his record. 
and uh, he was out of money, out of budget, never got a credit for it, but I'm on one of his records that he recorded at Sunset Sound. Wow. So stuff like that, you know, and I was, you know, I just wanted to sing, and, and for me, doing back, background vocals and singing is so easy for me. Even today, I mean, people say, oh, you're so old, you know, how can you sing? I sing just as well, if not better, than what I sang on the Harlow record. The only thing is, on some of the songs, I've had to drop the key maybe like a, a step and a half. Okay. But other than that, I'm actually even more intense singing-wise now because I don't, again, I don't have all those constraints of people telling me what to do and all this other stuff, and I had to look a certain way and be a certain way. And, and and it wasn't natural to me. It just didn't come natural to me. I was I was really just an artist. Mm. Now, when when you were making the record, and I'm I'm sure the record company were probably listening to what you were what you were recording at the time. Did they did they put the finger down and say you have to kind of gloss it up for the times? Because you seem to be saying earlier on in the, in the chat here that you were going for a different sound. And it ended up as, as as something else. Would that be fair fair assessment? Yes, yes. But we should have. I mean, again, you know, hindsight is the best. Well, I forget what the saying is: foresight or you know, insight or whatever. Yeah. Um, we should have just done the demos that we did that we that that we got signed on. And I'm not sure why that didn't happen. I think part of it was. You know, Pat and Brad had a falling out. And so, you know, I, I think it was like a, you know, just a male ego producer thing. And, you know, um, uh, you know, Brad was, a, he, he passed away. He actually was killed in a car accident. But he, he wasn't like this, like, phenomenally technically great guitar player. But Brad played like, really catchy parts. So I didn't really mind his guitar playing at all. You know, I thought, well, you know, he played parts and he complimented my guitar playing and stuff like that. But I guess there, there were, you know, in those days, again, in the, in the rock music business, it was very, how do I say it? It's like, nowadays, people just do what they do and there, there aren't the constraints. But in those days, everybody had to have their roles spelled out. And it was, if you're a guitar player, you had to be and look a certain way and act a certain way. And Brad wasn't that way. He was more of a of an alternative, kind of goofy guy, you know, very funny, mm. very sweet, and wasn't really the hard rock persona. And okay. so he, and he didn't have the technical, you know, hard rock stuff. But he was a really good guitar player. I liked his guitar playing. I liked his parts. It was more poppy, more pop kind of very catchy stuff, very melodic kind of stuff that he would do. And he was really easy to record with. And he's the one that really recorded the vocals for When You Love Someone and No Escape and the other song, um, Lonely Days. And he was so easy to record with because he wasn't like one of those domineering type of engineers. Okay. And um, and so 
he just kind of let me do what I wanted to do, and, and it worked. And um, Pat was easy, too, but Pat was more of a technical person. And I don't, I don't think the two could be, they, they couldn't share it, you know what I mean? Yeah. They just share it. And I think that really negatively impacted our, our situation. And we probably should have done the songs that we were signed on. Okay. But it would have been a very, very different band. I was okay with it. And yeah. it, it just so happened that when, it, because I recorded When You Love Someone, No Escape, and, a song, and Lonely Days, those three songs in the acoustic versions. And they played them, this is after we were signed, and they played them for Roberta Peterson, and she flipped out over them. And I think because of that, then it, then all of a sudden it went into this slamming hard rock direction where really it should have been like a, almost like alternative harder rock. We were doing something that nobody was doing and and nobody could really understand it. So they pigeonholed us where you have to be super, super hard rock or you have to be, you know, a pop band. Mm. And I didn't want to be a pop band, you know. I mean, I, I'm, I, I admire pop singers, but I never had the aspiration to be a pop star. It's just not in my personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in my voice. I mean, I just <laughs> sing with that edge. And I would die singing with that edge. Yeah. So, Teresa, did did the record company try and push outside songwriters on you at all? No, and they should have. I mean, I wanted I wanted to write with other people and stuff like that, but I was constrained by that stupid publishing deal. Okay. Focus. When the record was done, I believe, the first single was Chain Reaction, wasn't it? Yes. Were you disappointed they picked that one? Because it, it's a pretty obvious hard rock single. Did you want something else? Yes. Um, there was a technical problem with Chain Reaction. So I didn't... And what it was, was, you know, back in the day, to lock in the tapes reel-to-reel tapes, the, the analog machines, you had to use something that was called a synthy code. It would tell the machines to play together and lock in together in the tracks. Well, the synthy code on that particular song was damaged. It was that one and Over the Edge of Love. Those were the two where there was a damaged synthy code. And so... Chain reaction had to then be transferred to a digital recording machine. And digital recording in those days, it was it still had a very harsh, brittle, compressed sound. So when it was transferred, it lost something in the trans in the transfer. It just didn't sound right. And so because of it, I was against having that as the first single, but I had no choice. Mm. I had no taste. Me, I would have put out Silence or When You Love Someone. Well, w- when you look at when you look at that time period, every album broke. A lot of the albums broke because they had the ballad. Yeah, exactly. 
and and not not the rocker. Yeah, and when you love someone, was the uh, you know even when we played live and stuff, that was like the hit song. Okay, and even the radio people told me they said, "Why didn't they release that song?" And so by the time they released it, they didn't get behind it. But they really should have done that one first. Okay. What what was the reasoning behind putting Chain Reaction out then? I don't know. I didn't. Um, I I had no say so in it, and I don't know who chose it. But um, I was against it, and I even said, if you listen to the pre pre versions of Chain Reaction, if you're going to put it out, put that one out because it it had a better sound to it. Hmm. And and when I heard Chain Reaction on the radio, I said, that's the problem. It just didn't connect because it lost, it just lost some energy or something in the translation. Okay. And and it was because of the dig- digital transfer. I mean, I have versions of it before and after and to this day, you know, I mean, I, I can't stand listening to it with the, the digital, digitized version of it. Wow. And, um, yeah, because it was, I mean, all of us, we all in the band said, oh, what a disaster. And then I think the other thing, too, is we had a whole, there was this this movie called Them, an old 1940s movie. And it was about these um, ants that, that are near a nuclear test site. And they become giant ants, and then they start attacking, like, sugar trucks. And, you know, I, I, I can't remember the whole movie, but it was, it, it was always one of my favorite sci-fi movies. Yeah. And that was the concept for Chain Reaction, to have the huge ants and have them, you know, uh, more like a, you know, a, a song about, like, even though nuclear radiation is a very serious subject, also have a spoof where the band is, battling the ants and, you know, something like that. And and we've hired this video director, again, that, you know, had the, the band. We all worked on the concept, and we all loved it. And then in the video, he basically took all the money and said, well, we can't afford to do it. So in the middle of chain reaction, completely <laughs> this very brief section of ants or something, <laughs> it's just sort of like, what? <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. It was like, what a waste of $75,000, you know? Wow. I mean, uh, yeah, it was crazy. So that kind of sucked. But I think that also, you know, in those days, you had to have a great video and an interesting video. And it just wasn't, you know? And we all knew it. And it was, it was, it was you know, just, uh, I, I guess, I guess we can we can call this interview like how not to do it. Looking back, you know <laughs> how not to do it. But but um, you know, and I think people can learn from it and apply it. You know, new bands coming up and stuff like that, not to make these same mistakes. Yeah, it, it, and, it's, uh, it's it's amazing to me, Teresa. You're bringing up a point now that a lot of musicians from back then have, have said to me. When I was growing up, I all I had I always assumed a lot that. The musicians were had a lot of control over which way their career was going, and in the six years I'm doing the show, I'm finding out that that was a complete illusion. Oh, total, total illusion! And even though you're the artist, and and it's all being billed to you, and you know the publishing and the this and the that, 
they all take pieces of it, and then they tell you how to do it, and they're not even music people. You know, if you go back, I, I'm, I'm, I was a poli-sci history person, and um, I think the, the, where we fail as a, as a society, and even in the music business, is, you know, it's, history repeats itself. And if you don't learn from it, you're doomed to make the same mistakes. And so in my life, even though I've made a lot of mistakes, at least I haven't made the same ones. And then I had to fix myself to figure out why I even keep making mistakes and things like that. And I actually wrote a song about it called Mistakes. Great, great song that I haven't recorded. But I think that we we don't, you have to go back to like like the 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 late seventies when a lot of the record companies became consolidated and oil companies and banks and companies that had nothing to do with records or no understanding how to make them bought record companies and that's when the music industry first became consolidated. It was the first consolidation of the of the companies. And I think that slowly the A&R people that were the music people that really understood artists and music and how to make records because they were engineers and they were artists themselves and, you know, had made records and stuff like that, slowly became replaced by lawyers and, and business people and accountants that end up, you know, running record companies. Yeah. And I really think that destroyed the music industry. That's why people today, they don't, I mean, there's, there are all these artists out there and they have, you know, all these streams and, you know, there are more personalities, but quite honestly, the music to me is stale and it's boring. Yeah. And that's why I go back and listen to, you know, live performances and um, I just think that, it, it, you know, like when you listen to Alice in Chains, the acoustic version, or Neil Gallagher, or, you know, um, Chris Cornell, or any of these people where they're just singing live in the studio, playing their guitar, or playing their piano, and performing, to me, that is so exciting. And you can hear the song. Yeah. Instead of the same, you know, the same drum machine, you know, and people can't even sing. I mean, they're auto-tuned. So it put me out of business. You know, I don't have to be the ghost singer anymore, you know? <laughs> so that, I got replaced by Machine, <laughs> which is another song I wrote that's going to be out. I, I have so many songs, it's probably going to have to be like a three-version, you know, CD or something, but called machines and it's about that yeah it's about how i was used like a machine <laughs> so so Teresa, tell me about touring the harlow record uh who did you go out with on that tour we didn't we didn't they they didn't put money into us you know getting on tour or anything like that so that that was it you know you never played a live show we did we played some clubs and we got rave reviews Great reviews because we were great live and we sounded better than the record. And, you know, I think, again, there was that business change 
where Warner Brothers went through a major change where the people that were running the company no longer were going to be running the company. And so we got axed for our, our second record. But I think had they let us make the second record, we would have broken and, and we would have been on a tour. Mm. I've said this to a lot of people and they, they all say yes, more, more or less. But do you think grunge basically ended your career? No, no, I don't. I think um, I think we were more... Um, I don't think we were limited by that particular niche because we really weren't a grunge band. We really weren't like a, a you know, we were more like a Led Zeppelin. Mm. And, and that was really the sound of the band. I mean, I have like rehearsal tapes and, and, you know, when you listen to a song like Beyond Control, that to me sounds way more like Led Zeppelin than a grunge band. Yeah. A, a song like Silence, you know, that has a humongous choir, you know, in the middle of, of a song, you know, that was more like Queen. That was more like, I think we were a classic rock band. And I think that would have come out more on the second record, too. Yeah. Had well, we done it. Yeah. I, I, but when you look back then, all those bands that came out in the late, the, the mid to late 80s, early 90s, it was the image more than anything that killed them. It didn't matter how good the music was. They they were all come, they were all told to look a certain way, and then exactly. the image, yeah. So it, yeah, it was it, it, again. It was that it, you couldn't be unique. Hmm. And and part of it was was the band too. I mean, they didn't want to look unique. They wanted to wear the leather and the this and the that. I didn't. You know, I always had the. Um, when I would go to meetings at a record company, I had more of a business look, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I mean, I didn't wear a suit or anything like that, but pretty close, you know, like a, a casual, cas business casual to me because, and, and I looked hot, you know? I mean, it didn't, it didn't, but, but I wasn't, you know, but I wasn't all decked out in leather and chains and because I didn't, I never dressed that way. Yeah. It wasn't something I wanted to look like. So, you know, they tried to put me in that. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was okay, but it wasn't something something that, uh, first of all, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't believe in wearing leather and killing a bunch of animals for fur and leather and everything else. Even then, I, I was an animal person. Okay. So... Um, and, it, and it was hard to find the fake leather stuff. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff I had was custom made because that was the only way I would wear leather pants, and it, it had to be fake leather. Okay. So when you were going to business meetings back then, Teresa, did you surprise any of the record company people by asking questions that they might have expected because you had the lawyer background then? You know, Roberta Peterson said to me that she would hire me as her assistant in A&R <laughs> because I was, way, I was way more together even then, you know, writing stuff and, you know, I wasn't a lawyer, but I had the consciousness of just, you know, a certain organization and a certain, you know, being able to write and being literate and, and you know, that kind of a thing. So I never, I was, you know, I was more schooled that way. Yeah. 
it really and it really made a difference and it was intimidating to people because I didn't know I didn't understand the game you know I didn't understand how to use it and people always thought I was a bitch too that was the other thing if you were a strong woman you were immediately classified as a bitch wow yeah if you had an opinion you were a bitch so it was, it was very different nowadays you know it's all about the strong woman and you know there are all those songs about it and stuff like that but in, in back in the day, no, no. And if you had an opinion about how things should be engineered, oh my God, that was like the that was like you know committing a mortal sin or something. And you know the funny thing is when you say that the, the engineer and the producer are working for the band, so they shouldn't have a, an attitude like that. Well, where were you when it was all going on? Because I agree, but I'm telling you, man. It was, you know, when you have a big voice like mine, there there are ways to record it and ways not to record it. And I always had, because I, I you know, I began writing songs at such an early age, like when I was 13, 14, and I got the opportunity to work on, in studios that are no longer in existence. They were, a lot of them were on Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh, around like Hollywood Boulevard and west of Hollywood Boulevard. And there were all these little studios where the Rolling Stones had recorded and all these, you know, like 60s bands, and they had amazing equipment. And these engineers just knew how to record. And so I learned a lot about recording that way. Like I learned how to cut multi-track tapes. Because the guy, I was curious about, you know, how they would, like, roll the tape and they'd hear that, you know, you'd hear the kick drum or, mm -hmm. you know, how it was done. And the guy, I kind of, you know, a lot of these engineers were fried, and I was, once I figured out what he was trying to listen for, I went, ah, oh, there it is. And so he went, okay, you do it. And uh, so I actually learned to take the razor blade and, you know, like that. And I used to do it at our studio. Pat Regan would let me. He'd say, trust her. She can do this. And they'd go, really? You know? And I'd go, piece of cake, whack. You know, and that was it. Because that's what you had to do in those days. Yeah. So it's not like Pro Tools now and, you know, stuff like that where you can just cut and paste, like, like Word, you know, like Microsoft Word. That's what music, in a way, has become to. And don't get me wrong, I love Pro Tools. I use it. But anyway... One of the things I learned then was because I had that 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 type of voice, there was a way to record it. And the way to record me was never close up. It had to be a tube microphone, preferably a Neumann 47. And the compression had to be very, it was more over-easy compression. And the best recordings I ever got of my singing were ones where we recorded my voice where it was where we had multiple microphones. Okay. And when you listen to recordings of female singers today, they don't do that. Like, even Adele. There, there are things when I listen to the way, and I mean, you know, she's got, like, a major engineer, you know, people are going to say I'm full of it, you know. Mm. But I don't care. But there is that frequency where women sing when they sing in their chest voice and you're pushing the chest voice and it goes up into that 
middle register in chest, but if you're really in a middle register, you're vibrating those sinuses. And then when it's compressed, you can kind of hear that, like it's almost like a, a nasal, like almost like a sizzle. If you really listen closely to some of the recordings of female artists, you hear it. Okay. All the time. By the time it gets compressed and compressed and compressed. And the way around that is to use multiple microphones. David Bowie used to record that way. Oh. And there is a program, I think it's in, um, I can't remember which, which plugin it is, but it actually sets out like the, the, you know, the, the way the microphones were placed and you can actually do that. Um, I think there's a place, maybe it's Waves or something like that. I can't remember which one it is. But there is actually a way to do it. And the vocals I'm going to do, for example, I'm going to record them at my voice teacher's house hmm. because it sounds great, and I'm using the multiple microphone technique. Okay. I don't know if I'll use three, but definitely two. One for the room, and then one close up for the, you know, for the... um intimate sounds and stuff like that, but you have to blend it so you don't get that that mid-range sound that is natural to a woman's voice that vibrates the sinuses. That's really what it is. It's the sinuses vibrating because you're pushing the voice beyond, it's unnatural to sing your chest voice that high up. Okay. And so the sinuses vibrate. So with me, I would have engineers that would say, ew, that's the ugly part of your voice. No, you moron. That's the <laughs> ugly part of the voice. It was just the natural part of it. And so they didn't understand it, and they didn't have to, oh, it was just a nightmare, you know, to, to have to deal with people like that. But, but I had some engineers that would say, oh, that's the ugly part of your voice. Don't, don't. Don't sing there, you know. And I, I said, well, I, I, I can't just stop singing, you know, in the song. Yeah. You know, I got to do something. So I would back, I go, let me just back up from the microphone, and then you won't hear that sinus sound. And then they would go, oh, it's just so ugly. But I mean, it wasn't. It's just the natural part of someone's body. Mm. So you, you think, oh. do you think a lot of the engineers back then, they just wanted you to sing high because that seemed to be the trend with everybody. Yeah. That was the other thing. Don't sing low. You know, that that was the other thing. And I had a really low I, I have a I I've always had a very broad range, so I could sing low. And um now I love it. Now I absolutely love it. I can get so low because of, you know, my voice has aged. Yeah. And so it just sounds awesome. Mm. And it's present. And then when you get close up to the mic with that low sound, it just sounds phenomenal. So I can't wait to, you know, a lot of it I'm engineering myself. I figure, you know, how bad can I be, you know? Mm. You know, I can't be any worse than, you know, what's happened, what's happened before. So I'm mm. actually having a really good time doing it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing right now. I'm just busy right now because I have, you know, certain cases, but, but I'm going to start organizing it so I, um, uh, you know, I can, you know, I can work on both. Yeah. I, I just got a couple of questions, Teresa, before I leave you go. 
Um, how often over the years have you been approached to do Harlow shows? To do Harlow, excuse me, to do Harlow... Live shows. Um, maybe a couple of times, mm-hmm. but I haven't been able to because of my work schedule and stuff like that. But I would love to do it. I, I would please, if anybody out there wants me to sing or record or play some of those songs, I can actually do my own version of Beyond Control. It sounds awesome. Okay. So, um, you know, it's more of an acoustic version of it with a baritone guitar. Mm. There seems to have been, a, over the years, like a lot of these festivals start popping up and maybe there's some cruises that specialize in that sort of music. And one of the things they do to attract people to them is they'll get these bands to reform for those particular shows. And I'm just curious whether anyone has ever approached you to do one of those shows. That's all. Um, a couple of times, but it wasn't, you know, I couldn't get the rest of the band members. And then Tommy's in Kiss, so he's too, he's too big now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Do you keep in touch with Tommy? No, I saw him several years ago at the NAMM show, but he's, he's kind of become a, um, you know, sort of like Carlos beneath him now, you know? Mm. Yeah. He's a great, you know, he's a great guitar player. I would love to work with him again, but I doubt if it'll ever happen. Because, you know, part of it was, was you know, that business thing where, you know, we were so constrained. And I think, you know, there was a lot of resentment of why the band didn't happen. And a lot of it I got blamed for, but it really wasn't me, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all, you know. So I think that that was kind of unfortunate. And, you know, people change and stuff like that, but I'm happy for him. Because he always wanted to be in Kiss. Yeah. I mean, that was his life's goal, you know, and, and he grew up idolizing them and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm glad that he got to do his dream. Yeah. So wh- when you met Tommy after, I'll just finish with this. When you met Tommy after he, after he left Black and Blue, was he really pissed off with the music business at that stage? Because he he'd done four albums with Black and Blue. He was on Geffen Records. Um, they were promised big things and it never happened. What sort of frame of mind was he in? You know, he, 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 he didn't, he never badmouthed that whole situation or anything like that. He always had like a positive, professional attitude. That is the one thing about him in the studio, playing live. You know, he just had that great attitude. So I don't, I never saw him so pissed off because he just focused and moved forward. Okay. And, and that was, that was really great. I think that, you know, again, he was, he was, there were so many of those bands on Geffen at the time yeah. and on, um, you know, on all the labels and, and they were just all sort of put in a pot and whoever, you know, sort of like a, the crab barrel theory, although I don't believe in eating crabs and stuff, but, you know, where they're trying to crawl out and then one grabs them and they're, you know, being boiled. And and it, it, it just always seemed like that with all those bands. And then, unfortunately, it happened to Harlow, you know, and it was that music business. And I think the only way to get out of it is if you do get into a big band like a kid's or, you know, I remember at one point, Richie Blackmore wanted me to sing with Rainbow because he was having a fight with his 
lead singer, and then that didn't happen. And, um, when was that? That was that was after the Harlow record. Oh, so and because Pat, oh. Was, Pat was producing them. Okay, your I, that album is the one I think came out with Doogie White on it in '94. Yeah, well, maybe it was around then. I I can't remember when, but it was sort of like you know if it happens, great. If it doesn't, great. You know, but it was it was the kind of thing where when you're put in that pot and you're not allowed to be unique, then you just have to wait till, you know, either someone dies or or someone or they have a falling out and you get to sing in one of those bands and stuff mm-hmm. like that. How did Richie Blackmore know about you? Through Pat. Okay. Because that would have been for I don't know Richie. I've heard, I know his reputation. But for him to put a female singer in Rainbow, that was a would have been a pretty bold step. Oh, yeah, and I think that the reason it didn't happen is because of that, you know, sort of like, well, a female singer, you know, a lead singer. But my voice was big enough, I could, I can sing over any band. I mean, I could sing over, you know, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I mean, I hope that I'll be able to do, you know, I'll probably have to do acoustic performances at some of those festivals. It's something I want to get into. Yeah, and a lot of, and especially the cannabis ones. But you know, it's it's one of those things where I can sing and play, and I have you know loopers and harmony things, and it sounds pretty big. Yeah, you know, it's just a matter of of, um, the challenge is coordinating it all. You know, because you have to press a lot of buttons. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I have to say, Teresa, I'm glad you're still writing music, and I'm glad you're actually going to hopefully release new music soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for contacting me. Yeah. I really appreciate it. You know, we'll stay in touch and I'll send you some I'll send you some songs. Yeah. Um they're not done yet, but I'll send you the songs so you can hear some of the stuff. I just have to get through my <laughs> my uh work. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna be working over the holidays on a on a particular case. I can't wait and I appreciate it so much and I would love for your input on hearing the new music and and what you think sure send it to me and i'll get back to you no problem okay all right i I really appreciate it thank you so much no problem i really enjoyed this chat okay all right right. have a good rest of the day you too thank you so much bye Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That is a wrap for Richie's chat with Teresa Straley, as well as a wrap for our uh, our month-long chunk of classic throwback episodes. Hope you guys enjoyed this little little diversion for a few weeks. I thought it was a pretty cool idea that Richie came up with. And uh, hey, what the hell, right? You got the audio. Why not do it? So that will do it for another week here on Focus on Metal. Like I always say, not really sure what's up for next week, but uh, you can pretty much guarantee that uh, we will be back once again with more of your weekly dose of what you crave. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! is insignificant.
You're still here? It's over. Go home.